You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, like Wesley said, my name is Michael. I'm the director of operations here at King's. Uh, I am what some people would call airport anxious, uh, where I want to get to the airport four hours early. There's, there's nothing that makes me feel more out of control than traveling, than airports. And so I want to get there as early as I possibly can. I want to get through security as early as I possibly can. I want to get to my gate and make sure that it exists, just, just to be sure. And you know what? I'm fine sitting there for two hours. Doesn't bother me, right? Like I'm, I'm like all of those dads in, in the memes, the airport dads that uh, want to get to the airport at 6 a.m. for a 12 p.m. flight, which I think, I think we have some examples of that on the slides, but, but maybe not. Maybe it's all frozen today. Okay, we'll keep going. There we go. Look at that. Uh, that's me. I'm an airport dad. Elizabeth, my wife, on the other hand, is, is what you might call airport risky where she likes to get to the airport 45 minutes before the flight takes off. She likes to breeze through security, and she likes to walk onto the plane as the final boarding call is going over the PA system. I did not know this about her when we got married. <laughs> and so the first couple years of our marriage were, were like a constant battle whenever we would have to travel about when we were going to get to the airport. I always wanted to get there early, and she always wanted to get there late. I wanted to have plenty of time to sit, and she didn't want to sit at the gate for some reason. (laughs) Because we lived in a small city, she usually won. The Raleigh-Durham airport is usually pretty empty, usually could breeze right through, uh, until one day we couldn't. One day we arrived at the airport, and the security line, which was usually like three or four people long, was strapped around the entire building. There was some sort of system failure. It was 45 minutes until our flight took off. Steam is already coming out of my ears. (laughs) But I get in line, and we wait, and 20 minutes later, we arrive at the front next to the TSA lady. And the TSA lady looks at Elizabeth's ticket, and she says, her name is misspelled. And I said, what do you mean her name is misspelled? And she said, her name is misspelled. And I said, well, that's an airline problem. And the TSA woman said, no, that's a you problem. (laughs) So she kicked us back to the line, We went to the front desk, we got the ticket changed, we ran back to the TSA woman, but before we got there, we were intercepted by a six foot five mountain of a man who demanded to know what gave us the right to cut in line. And I said, sir, very respectfully, because I'm five nine on a good day, I'm just trying to get to the TSA woman. She's right up there, she waved us over, we got through security, there's three minutes left until our flight. We start running towards the gate, they closed the door, but they opened it back up for us. We get to the end of the jet bridge, And then the ground starts to move, and the plane gets further and further away. We had missed it by about 15 seconds. Now, being airport anxious, you can imagine that this was my worst nightmare. And I left that jet bridge a shell of a man, completely and utterly devastated. And I sat down next to the Popeyes that was right next to our gate, And I looked at the wall, and I didn't say anything. And Elizabeth knew better to ask me questions. (laughs) She knew that I had run out, that I was empty inside, that I had nothing left to give. Now, maybe you're more emotionally resilient than me, but I wonder if you've ever felt this feeling, this set of emotions, this, this feeling of having run out, this feeling of being empty this feeling of having nothing left to give because of life's circumstances. 
right? I know that many, many people in here and in Washington see work really intense jobs, right? Jobs that demand a lot of you. Jobs that get you out of bed really early and get you back in bed really late at night. You, you took the job when it seemed like it had a lot of promise, but that promise has now worn thin, and you don't know how you're going to do it for one more day. You have run out. You are empty, and you have nothing left to give. I know that some of you have tried dating for a long time, and the constant carousel of mediocre first dates and goodbyes that are kind of inconclusive, man, it's, it's left you feeling like you don't want to put yourself out there anymore. You have nothing left to give. You've run out. Some of you are sick. You know people who are sick. And that, that constant stream of doctor's appointments and results that aren't really results and medicines that don't seem to work, it's, it's left you feeling so exhausted that you don't even have the energy to Google your symptoms one more time. You've, you've run out. And of course, some of us are grieving. And as we grieve the loss, loss of a loved one, we're trying to figure out what it looks like to to even make it through the next day, much less what it looks like to function in society again, right? You've run out and you have nothing left to give. What do we do in these seasons? What do we do in seasons of emptiness like this when we feel like we've run out and when we feel like we have nothing left to give? I think that John has an answer for us. I think this passage is, is going to give us some resources for what to do in this season. Right, this is the first miracle in the Gospel of John. John calls miracles in his Gospel signs because all of the miracles in the Gospel of John, he's chosen and put into his book very carefully and specifically to tell us something about who Jesus is and therefore also about who we are in light of who Jesus is. This is what he says in John 20, verses 30 through 31, that Jesus did many other signs besides these in the presence of his disciple. But these signs, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing in him, you may have life in his name. And so John has chosen the miracles in this book very carefully. And so when we come to this miracle, we should ask the question, why is it here? Why did John elect to tell us about this miracle? And why did Jesus choose to do it? Right? On the surface, this miracle doesn't seem particularly interesting or important, right? No one is healed. No one is raised from the dead. No demons are cast out. Like basic sustenance, like bread and fish, not even given to people. Instead, this, this is an anonymous miracle that takes place in an insignificant town and in an insignificant region at a wedding that's falling apart because of oversight, neglect, and ignorance. And yet this is precisely the place where Jesus chooses to do his first miracle, where he, in the words of John, chooses to manifest his glory for the first time in the presence of his disciples. Why? I think it's because he's, he's, he's saying something fundamental about who he is in doing this miracle. That he comes to this party that's been falling apart, and by his presence and his joy and his power, he revives it and bring li brings life to something that was falling apart. And in the same way, Jesus has broken into our world. He has come to, to this gathering, a gathering that was falling apart by sin and neglect and oversight and ignorance. And by his power and his joy and his life and his actions, he has revived it and brought life to something where once was death. That he is the master of the banquet, the leader of the feast. He is the good wine that has been poured out till now. And as the good wine, we can take and drink in seasons of emptiness. And so this is going to be my main idea, that the good wine is here. 
drink up. That Jesus has come and we can take of him. And seasons of emptiness, the good wine is here and we can drink of him. And I think what John is going to show is that we can do this in three different ways. First, we can ask persistently. Second, we can obey freely. And third, we can enjoy him endlessly. And in all of these things, in seasons of emptiness and seasons of abundance, we can drink up of the good wine that has been given right now. So we'll start with that first one, asking persistently. Uh, This is where the passage starts. I I think what we'll see here is that Mary, the mother of Jesus, shows what it looks like to ask appropriately in seasons of, of emptiness and what it looks like to potentially ask inappropriately in seasons of emptiness and dryness. So let's look at the text, starting in verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So John drops us right into the action, right? We're at a wedding, and apparently it's a bad wedding. They're running out of wine. This would be embarrassing today, right? If you've promised your guests wine or food and you run out, that would be embarrassing. It it wouldn't look good for you. And in the same way, back then, this would have been really embarrassing, and in fact, it would have been more embarrassing, right? This was an honor-shame culture. This was also a hospitality culture. A wedding was supposed to go for at least a week at a time. And so to run out of provision like wine would have been a major social blight on the bride and the groom. And so what happens? You see Mary leap into action, right? Older women at weddings in this time were were expected to help out if something went wrong. And in that way, weddings back then aren't all that different from weddings today. Right? Sometimes older women in the congregation will leap up and try to help out, whether that's been asked for or not. <laughs> I wonder if you've seen this. Uh, the very first wedding that I ever officiated was for my best friend in high school, and right as the bride was supposed to come down the aisle, the AV system went out. And the wedding coordinator started to fiddle with the AV system. And, and I guess we all just kind of sat there awkwardly, and one of the women in the congregation just got impatient, and she stood up, She went to the bar, she got a red solo cup, she pulled up the wedding processional on her phone on Spotify, put the phone in the cup, and pressed play. And that's what the bride processed down to, right? She leapt into action. That's what we see Mary doing here. Mary is leaping into action. She's trying to figure out what to do. She's trying to find some way to resolve the situation with the wine. And so that's the posture that she approaches Jesus from. She goes to him because he's her son and he needs to do what she tells him to do. And she does tell him to do something. She says, there is no wine, which is a statement, but it's really a question. It's a classic momism. Your mama's done this to you. There are socks on the floor. There are dishes in the sink. That boy is cute. Right? All of these are are statements behind which is a question or or request that's buttressed by the authoritative statement, I am your mother, right? And that's what we see Mary doing. Mary goes up to Jesus and she tries to tell him what to do, to force his hand to make him act, and Jesus isn't going to play that game. He says, Woman, which sounds rude, and, and I am making it sound rude. It's actually not that rude. In John 19, when Jesus is on the cross, he looks down at his mother Mary and at the beloved disciple, and he says, woman, behold your son. 
So it's the same word, woman. He's not being rude there. But, but what he is doing is putting distance between himself and his mom, which is the same thing that he does throughout the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. That whenever Jesus's biological family tries to make an authoritative claim on him as his biological family based on a previous relationship that they have with him, Jesus doesn't play that game. Because the family that Jesus cares about now is his spiritual family, right? He cares about those that in the words of John 1, 12 through 13, have been given the right to become children of God. That's Jesus's family. And everybody has to make that spiritual shift, including his biological family. And so he puts distance between him and Mary. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You see, what Jesus understands is that as soon as he does a miracle, as soon as his ministry formally starts, the clock starts ticking. And his hour, which is the hour that he is crucified, is only a mere few years away. And so what Jesus is telling Mary is that you have no authority to tell me what to do. You have no authority based on a previous relationship you have with me to tell me how I'm going to act, when I'm going to act, or the manner that I'm going to act. You don't get to tell me to do that. And in this way, I think Mary actually mirrors something that, that sometimes happens to us in seasons of emptiness and dryness. And these kinds of seasons, if you're like me, the, the natural inclination might be to try to fill yourself up as fast as you possibly can, to leave that season of dryness and emptiness as fast as you possibly can. And one way that you might try to do that and that I might try to do that is by trying to force God's hand, by trying to make God act in my favor. And sometimes I try to force God's hand and make him act in my favor by bringing out these things that I've done before him in the past, these things that I've done on his behalf and for him and as I've been following him in the past, and I bring them before him and I say, because I've done these things, you need to act now. Because I've followed you, you need to provide me relief now. Because I've given to your church, you need to bring me out of this season of dryness now, right now. And yet when I do that, when, when I approach God from that posture of presumptuousness and pride, what I'm doing is I'm taking these good works that have only been within me and that I've only been able to do because of the work of the Holy Spirit within me in the first place, and I'm holding them up to God as though they would make him act, right? In other words, I'm trying to earn God's favor with the things that I've done for him in the past. But that doesn't work before salvation, and it doesn't work after salvation, if you are in Christ, God is for you. God's favor is already upon you. And we don't have to try to force his hand or earn his favor. And when we do so, when we do try to hold our good works before him as though that would force God to act, we shouldn't be surprised if we hear him say, what does this have to do with me? That's not the kind of request that moves the heart of God. It's not the kind of ask that, that causes him to, to move. The kind of request and the kind of ask that does move the heart of God is embodied by Mary after she understands this, where she goes to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you, right? There seems to be a shift in Mary's heart here and in Mary's attitude, where now she is not presuming on the timing or the manner that Jesus is going to act. She still believes that he's going to act based on his character, based on what she knows about him, but she doesn't assume that he's going to do it in the way that she wants him to, or even on the timeline that she wants him to. She just prepares the way. And then she steps out of the story, and she waits, and she watches. This is a humble ask. 
It's a desperate ask. It's, it's the kind of ask where, where you say, I don't have that, I don't have the power to solve this. Only you have the power and authority to solve this. And I don't know how you're going to do it, but I trust that you will do something. It's a persistent ask. It's an ask that she's already asked Jesus to do this and she still goes ahead and tells the servants to get ready for what Jesus is going to do. And this kind of ask, this humble and bold and persistent ask is exactly the kind of request that's moved God's heart throughout history and the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? This is Hezekiah who's told that he's going to die. And instead of accepting that, he cries out to God and God ends up giving him 15 more years, This is the story of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 who approaches Jesus and asks him to heal her daughter and Jesus says no, but she leans in and asks Jesus to do it again and Jesus does heal her daughter. It's the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18 who knocks on the door day and night until the judge finally comes out and adjudicates her case. This this persistent and desperate, humble and bold prayer moves the heart of God. And in seasons of emptiness and dryness, this is a resource that is available to us right now that we can drink up of the good wine by going to God and asking him to fill our cup right now. That instead of turning to other things, we can pray and ask God again and again, boldly and humbly, won't you do something? Won't you take me out of this place? And yet as we do so, we shouldn't shouldn't expect that just because we think we know the way that God should act, that he will in fact act that way. We should expect like Mary that Jesus might actually act in ways that, that, that are contrary to our expectations, right? And in ways that we didn't see coming. This is the tension of prayer, that on the one hand, we are invited to be specific in what we ask of God. And on the other hand, we are invited to be open-handed in the way that he's actually going to act and in what he's actually going to do, right? We may ask for bread and our father is not going to give us a snake, but at the same time, we may not know exactly what kind of bread we need. Right, I've seen this in my life before. There have been times when I felt like I'm running empty and I've asked God to fill my cup and he's done it in ways that I didn't see coming and that I couldn't have expected. Right, I remember there was a season when Elizabeth and I were dating about a year into our relationship where it felt like our relationship was running on empty. We, we didn't see a future with each other. She wanted to go and live overseas or live in Washington, D.C., do policy. She wanted to do international relations. I wanted to live in Texas and be a pastor. Right? We, we didn't see how those two things could align. And so even though we prayed that God would fill our cup and fill us up, that he would pour out the good wine, we, we ended up breaking up. And in that season, I was so mad. I was so mad. Because I had asked God to, to save us. I had asked God to pour his good wine on us. I had asked God to bring us out of this season of dryness. And all, and all God had done was led us to a breakup, to separation to being away from each other. And yet over the course of those two months, something began to happen in our hearts where where God softens our conviction about being in any one particular place and even about doing any one particular job while he increased our conviction that we needed to be together. And after a couple of months, we, we got back together when we realized that we were now aligned that more than anything else, we felt like we were called to each other, right? God used something that I didn't see coming, that I couldn't have expected, and that frankly, I wouldn't have chosen for myself to fill my cup. And in the same way, God might do that with you. 
God might use something that you haven't expected and that you don't see coming to fill your cup. And seasons of dryness and emptiness, we can ask persistently. And we're also invited to ask open-handedly. And yet in these seasons, we're not just kind of relegated to praying and then sitting back and waiting. Jesus seems to have given us a way to live and a way to act that will continue to fill our cups in this season as we wait for him to fill our cup in a more permanent way right, in, in, in the way that we're expecting him to act or in the way that we would like him to act, right? This is where the passage continues in verse 6, that there were six stone jar, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. We'll pause there for just one second. What we see in the actions of these servants is that even in seasons of emptiness and dryness, we are invited to obey Jesus freely. And that in obeying Jesus freely, we might actually see our cup filled up, again, in ways that we're not expecting and in ways that we didn't see coming. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about these servants before. I've read this story a bunch of times. But what these servants do is kind of remarkable, isn't it? Right there, you might imagine that they're running around, right? They're trying to find wine. They're responsible for making sure that this wedding happens. You might imagine that the, wedded, the, the master of the feast has told them to go and find wine wherever they can. And then this guy comes up to them. And he points at these six giant stone water jugs, and he tells them to fill them up with water, which would require them to draw water from the well. This would be monotonous, tedious, very heavy manual labor. It would require them to drop everything that they were doing to follow Jesus, and yet that's exactly what they do. They stop what they're doing, the thing that makes sense, to follow Jesus, even though they don't know why they're following him and they don't know what obeying him is going to do. And then the, act get, the ask gets even more intense. Right, Jesus tells the servants to bring some of the water to the master of the feast, which you should think of as a wedding coordinator on steroids, right? Very stressed out, right? Running around, head on fire, especially in a situation like this, trying to figure out where to get more wine, what to do. How is that conversation gonna go if you're the servant? Like, hey, here's some water. No, I don't know why I brought this to you. No, I don't know who that guy is. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'll just take myself out now, right? Like, how is that going to play? That's not going to play correctly, right? That, that might actually get you fired. It might make you lose your job. And yet these servants do it. They obey Jesus. And though they don't know why they're taking the water to the master of the feast, they do it anyway. And in obeying Jesus, in their obedience, their literal cup is filled to overflowing. And the cup of all of those around them is filled to overflowing as well. Here's the thing that I think John is telling us. The commands of Jesus, the rules that he's given us to live by, they might be hard and they might be tedious and they might not always make sense. But even in seasons of emptiness and dryness, following the rules of Jesus will not lead to, to artificial constraint or burdens on us, but it will lead to greater freedom and flourishing. That the rules of Jesus lead to freedom and that the constraints lead to greater flourishing. But this is highly countercultural, isn't it? Right? Some of you may be rolling your eyes right now, wondering how it's possible that rules would lead to greater freedom. Aren't those things like, you know, opposites of each other? 
those things don't really align. They don't match up. And, and if that's you, that's, that's fine. That's kind of been the drift in our culture over the last 60 years. That any rule or norm or, or regulation that would affect what I want to do in any individual moment, especially if that rule is associated with Christianity, it must be thrown out. Others have noted that this is, this is true as well. Uh, Christopher Latch, in an article for The Atlantic this last week, described this movement by saying that many assume that psychological health and personal liberation are synonymous with an absence of inner restraints, inhibitions, and hangups. Right, the, the kind of default setting in our culture is to say if there's something that keeps me from self-actualizing, if there's something that keeps me from doing what I want, when I want it, especially if it's associated with Christianity, we need to throw those rules out. And yet the problem with saying that is that you've just made another rule, right? By saying that we shouldn't have rules or that we should throw out the rules of Christianity, you have made another rule. And this gets to the, to, the, to the problem of this way of thinking, that no one actually believes that we shouldn't have rules. Everyone is fine putting constraints on themselves for greater freedom later, right? We all do this whether we're conscious of it or not. We sit at red lights in the morning on the way to work and on the way back from work so that we have the freedom to not get hit by a car in an intersection, right? Many of you tomorrow at lunch will, will bring a salad or order a salad instead of ordering a chicken sandwich so that you have the freedom to feel more awake and alert in the afternoon, right? We're putting constraints on ourselves all the time to maximize our freedom later. The question is not, should we have rules? The question is, what are the right rules? And what the Bible says again and again is that the rules that Jesus has laid out are the right rules, that they are rules that exist for our flourishing and our freedom, for the good of our hearts in seasons of emptiness and in seasons of provision, Right? This is why Paul says that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. That the way of life that Jesus has called us to follow will lead to greater freedom. And other things will actually lead to greater constraint. And yet in these seasons of emptiness and dryness, the, the natural bent of my heart at least is, is to go after those things that are outside the bounds that Jesus has marked for us. Because those things seem fast. And it seems like they'll, they'll fill our hearts up fast that they'll make me feel better fast, that they'll provide some sort of immediate relief that I think I need. Why do we do this? Right? Why, do, why do we think that, that watching something late at night that we know we shouldn't be watching, right? justifying it by, by the fact that we've had a hard day at work, why do we think that that will make us feel better? Why do we think that it will make us feel better to have too much to drink after a hard doctor's appointment? Why do we think that it will make us feel better to take out our anger and our frustration on those that we love most because we don't know where else to channel it? Why do we think that these things are gonna make us feel better? They may make us feel better for a second, but all that that's going to do is lead us to a place where our cup is even emptier than it was before, where it's run drier than it even was before. It's like having a Sprite in the middle of a workout, right? Or you have a Sprite, and maybe it makes you, it slakes your thirst for like a second, but just a few minutes later, you're gonna feel horrible, right? You're gonna be even thirstier, and your workout's gonna be even harder, right? But Jesus has given us rules and a way of living that leads to our freedom and flourishing, even in seasons of emptiness and even in seasons of dryness. I'll give you just one example. In seasons of emptiness and dryness, my, my tendency 
is to withdraw into myself, right? To, to try to be by myself. I don't want to be around other people. I just want to withdraw. And yet what Jesus has told us is that we are called to assemble with his people, right? To be a part of the church, to be a part of a community, to plug into community. And so in seasons of emptiness and dryness, when by the power of the spirit, I am able to, to plug into community and be with God's people, what I find is that there are other people who are able to take my empty cup and are able to provide me with spiritual resources that God has given them that there is flourishing and freedom and following the rules and the commands that God has given us, that it leads to our good, that it leads our heart towards him, even in seasons of emptiness, that we can drink up of the good wine by following the way that he has set out for us to live. The commands of Jesus are not arbitrary and they're not made to make our life harder. They may be hard to follow and they may be tedious, but they will allow us to drink up of the good wine. And yet as we follow Jesus and as we ask persistently for him, there are spiritual resources that we have right now. And this brings me to my third and last point, that we can drink up of the good wine by enjoying Jesus endlessly. This is where the passage goes, starting in verse 9, that the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus turned the water into wine. And that wine was not something that the people at the party at the wedding had to wait for. It was something that was accessible to them right then, right at that wedding. They were able to take and enjoy the good wine that Jesus had poured out for them. And in the same way, the, the good wine that Jesus has poured out for us is for you and I today not just later, it's for today, right? Some people think of Christianity as, as primarily a future-oriented thing, where, where we get saved now, and then we just wait for a better day, when things will be a little easier, and we just kind of have to endure until that day. And that's true to a certain extent, but what the New Testament says again and again is that Christ has come to maximize our joy in the future, yes, but he has also come to maximize our joy now. That the good wine that he has poured out for us is for the future, yes, but it is also for us to drink up now, right? This is what Jesus says in John 10, 10, that I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3, that God in Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. He has blessed us. This has already happened. This is for us right Right now. And what those spiritual benefits are that we get to enjoy endlessly starting today, they're in the text, right? Did you notice that the kind of water that Jesus takes and turns into wine is the water that was used for purification, for the Jewish rites of purification, of making oneself right before God. And he changes that water that was used for purification into wine, the symbol that Christians have used for the blood of Jesus for millennia, Right? What John is saying and what Jesus is doing when he does this miracle is that he has replaced all of those things that used to make us right before God, and he has replaced them with himself. That by going to the cross and by dying for us, we are already right before God. Our sins have already been made right before him. We have already been de declared innocent because of what he's done. And look, this is kind of something that, that many of us who have been in the church for a long time know but what seasons of emptiness and dryness could do is they can put us to a point where we actually believe that, where we're put to a point where we have to believe that that's true, 
Because in seasons of emptiness and dryness, the tendency in our hearts is to start to cry out and wonder, is God here? Is God with me? Is God for me? Has God left me? Do I matter to God? And the answer that Jesus' blood gives us is a conclusive and a categorical and an eternal yes, that you do matter to God, that God has not left you, that God is with you, that you matter so much to God that he gave his son for you, that his son poured out his blood for you. And that's something that we can take and enjoy and drink of today, that instead of turning to other things that we would drink of in order to fill our cup, right, instead of trying to force God's hand or turning to things outside the bounds that he has set for us, we can rest in the fact that he has already done it all. And so we reap all the benefits. It's here in the text, right? This bridegroom reaps all of the benefits of what Jesus has done. This is an anonymous miracle. Only the servants and Mary and his disciples know what he's done. Everyone just thinks that this bridegroom who's caused the wedding to fall apart by his ignorance and his cheapness and his oversight. Everyone thinks that this bridegroom brought out the good wine. Jesus did it all, and this bridegroom reaps it all. And it's the same for us. Jesus has done it all, and you and I reap all the benefits. There is one more spiritual benefit that we have in Christ, which is the eternal part, the endless part, that we do get to enjoy Jesus endlessly. And that no matter how dry our cup runs today, and no matter how long our season of dryness goes, we know that just around the corner, there is another day coming. Right, going back to the question we asked at the beginning, why this miracle? Why is this what Jesus chooses to do first? I think the answer is that this is what he chooses to do last as well that the very last miracle that Jesus does as described in Revelation 19 is to draw all nations to himself, all people from every race, nation, tribe, and tongue who have followed him faithfully, and there he will convene another wedding feast. And at that feast, he will pour out good wine, the best wine, and it will cause our cup to overflow, and our cup will never, ever run empty again at that feast. And that feast, we will sing hallelujah all together that the lamb has overcome. We will never experience another season of dryness or emptiness, but we will declare all together, gazing at Jesus's face, drinking up of the good wine that he has poured out. Christ is mine forevermore. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.